might dig in a little here. Because holiness, if you kind of think about it, I don't know what your experience has been, my experience with the word holiness is it's kind of obscure to me. It's kind of, it's almost aloof a little bit. It's kind of definitely outside of my capacity, right? And so what I've often done with the idea of holy is I kind of look at it and I go, well, that's interesting, and then I look away. <laughs> and I don't have a lot of time for it to develop the idea of what does that actually mean. I think today we can look at some things that would actually give us a context to understand what holiness actually came to be. Um, for in my life, I have one specific event that's coming up that very much is a challenge for me related to holiness. And it's related to holy matrimony. We've applied that phrase, right, to marriage. On October 2nd of this year, in a couple of weeks, my son and his partner are going to be married, his male partner. Now, for some of you, you just were like, really? So you would wonder, I bet you can come in there with me and wonder, how in the world am I going to navigate that? What in the world can I do that would help navigate? Here's what's interesting. The idea of holiness, as it's spoken of and given to us in the New Testament, actually has helped me navigate a lot, a whole lot. So I think we can go in and take a look. Uh, You're probably wondering why the shovel, right? Why the shovel? That was part of the deal. So let's, let's talk about the shovel. What is this? It's just a piece of metal. You can tell it's been stamped out. It doesn't have a lot of inherent value and worth to it. There's a number of passages in Exodus and Numbers, and then again in Kings and Chronicles as they were building the tabernacle and the temple, where it talks about holy shovels. Did you know that? There's holy shovels. There's all kinds of holy instruments that were part of the equation. Now, what's inherently wonderful and sacred and spectacular about this? Virtually nothing. What has made it, this one isn't really worth a darn thing. It's just for scooping ashes out of my uh, fireplace. The holy shovels in God's context were holy because someone had applied, had imposed had affirmed, had bestowed holiness upon a shovel. Get a little bit of that? It had been, it didn't earn it inherently. It had been applied. It had been brought in. I bet if you're willing to take a look at me in some scripture, we can find out some about this. Uh, So we're going to go there. Now, in the New Testament... The holiness word, or the word for holy, comes up. I'll leave this right here. When you see it, compare yourself for a minute. <laughs> when the, in the New Testament, holy comes up 183 times. The vast majority of the times, it's in reference to and connected with spirit, so it's Holy Spirit. But there's a number of other things. Listen to what's in common between these things in the New Testament. It says that there's a holy temple There's holy places in the temple, there's a holy land, there's a holy nation, there's holy covenant, holy priests, prophets, angels, first fruits, which were offerings, vessels, city, mountain, church, saints, apostles, brothers, pastors, a body, husband, children, and even a holy kiss. What do those things have in common? Not much. 
to be honest with you. There are people, there are places, there are things, and they're all ascribed holy. I thought you might get a kick out of this. Anybody remember the old Batman and Robin series? Remember that? So here's a few things that Robin decided were holy. Oops. Let's go to this. Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. But if I can get out of this, here we go. I'm ready. Here we go. Holy magnetic missiles. Holy high altitude. Holy rockets. Holy tooth decay. Holy heavy rocks. Holy hope. Holy banana splits. Holy Marconi. Holy ego. Holy mackerel. Holy smoke. Holy breaking and entering. Holy dog paddle. Holy delays. Holy chili willies. Holy bats in the belfry. Holy highway robbery. Holy clip feathers. Holy Holy strange odors. Holy Benedict Arnold. Holy <laughs> strange odors. Holy Benedict Arnold at the end. And at the very beginning, holy high altitude, which you can relate to right now. Now, you say, what in the world? Well, it's interesting because if you apply holy, you can apply holy to just about anything. Here's what I'd like you to think. Just about any person, place, thing can be declared holy or significant in its purpose and its distinction, specifically to be used by God to accomplish his redemptive plan because value is ascribed rather than earned. Let me say it again. Any person, place, thing that can be declared holy because or significant in purpose and distinction, specifically to be used by God to accomplish his redemptive plan. God has used just about everything through history and has ascribed, has imposed, has imported holiness in. Holiness was not there in its existent state was not there inherently. God ascribed this. Now here's what's fascinating. In the New Testament, the vast majority of those descriptions are people, followers, who are describing things as holy. Did you know that in the New Testament, God never describes Christ as holy? You find that interesting? I do. God yet ascribed all kinds of things as holy because they were brought to the position of being used to accomplish his redemptive plan. They were distinct and they were purposeful. If you have a Bible there or a phone or an iPad or one of these other kind of things, turn with me to John chapter 4. This is not the passage you would think that we would study with holiness. In fact, Christina read from Isaiah 6. So that's repeated in Revelation 4. And that's a discussion where... Isaiah or John are watching angels and others ascribe holiness to God. Interestingly, there's a three-time holy, which could be in reference to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Just interesting. But there's a, a, a concept in there that they're ascribing holiness to God, which you can do, by the way, at any time just by describing anything else that wants to take God's place as more important. Right? If you do that, then that's more holy. If you describe God as more holy, then you give God that same kind of holiness. But what we're looking at is a little more personal right here. So let's look at John 4. If you have that, you turn to John 4. I'm going to walk us through John quickly. John 1, he talks about 
what is happening here, very Greek, very philosophical, very broad terms, very educated terms about the word coming and becoming flesh for us. Did you ever think about the distinction that Jesus had to accomplish in that? He had to make himself, first of all, at some level, distinct from the Father. You ever think about that? There's a a theologian that actually believes the whole impetus behind any creation could never have happened if Jesus Christ hadn't decided to say, I will become distinct and go take on flesh. It's a big deal. John goes on and he says, there's another man that came along, John the Baptist, who described and testified about, and his purpose, he was just a guy, he looked like a kook, but his purpose was to say, this Jesus Christ came to do something and for us. And uh, then Jesus calls disciples. These are just knucklehead fishermen. They've got no inherent specialness about them. They're not much different from that shovel. In fact, a lot of them proved out to be about that smart, right? Just like you and me, by the way. And Jesus just came along and said, you're not any more special than anybody else. I bring specialness and holiness to you because I have a distinction for you and I have a purpose for you that's going to be unbelievable. Then... He goes to the wedding. You know that whole story where he, in a very, without a lot of words about it, no addressing of who's involved in that, but he definitely affirms the concept of a wedding and of that commitment and that covenant of marriage. He does it by actually bringing the best gift anybody brought, which is pretty amazing that he chose to do that. Then we go on to the uh, end of chapter 2. He goes into the courts, and you go, wait, what do these two things have to do with each other? On the one hand, he's at a wedding, then you turn around, and he's kicking everybody out of the, the temple courts. Why? Because they were, it's not because they were making money selling things to be sacrificed. It's because they were not allowing the temple to be the thing that it was designed to be. The purpose was for the whole planet to be able to come and access Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And they had made it inaccessible by setting up all of this stuff out in the courtyards. Looking through this lens of holiness, all of this is tied together. You get to three, he talks to Nicodemus, who's a highly educated religious guy, and he says, you know what? There is a birth that has nothing to do with the physical birth that you have always defined for 1,500 years as being the inherent definition of being a special one of God. And he says, there's a birth that's a spiritual birth that has nothing to do with that physical birth. You hear the holiness? And then we get to four, which I hope you're there with me. In four, he starts off, you know, he's talking to some Pharisees, and he decides, I need to go north back up to Galilee, and he goes through Samaria. You could probably tell me the story, to be honest with you. Verse four, he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town called Sychar. Jacob's well was there. I don't have to tell you this story. You've heard it. A woman comes down. Jesus engages her. She knows What's going on? He says, will you give me a drink? It's a very innocuous question, right? Sounds like it's no big deal. That's his lead line. Will you give me a drink? He's obviously thirsty. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How in the world is it that you're asking me to give you a drink? 
And uh, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. What just happened there? I thought we were talking about just some refreshment, a little bit of, uh, you know, moisture on the lips. And Jesus just turned it around and turned it into holy, eternal life. What? So she says, well, where do you get this water? (laughs) A good question. And he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, this water in this well. But whoever drinks the water that I will give them will not thirst. Now she's going, what in the world is this guy all about? You hear how he's tractor beaming him, her into. He's pulling her into the story. He's actually ascribing her worth in her significance right there, just the way she is. He's pulling her in. So she says, well, I would love to have some of this water. What does he say in response to that? Verse 16, go get your husband, bring him back. That's a weird response. Now, you know what he's going to tell her in a minute because she's going to say, well, I don't have a husband. And he's going to say, I know you've had five husbands and you're living with a sixth man who is not your husband. Now, don't you think if we were really talking about holiness, he would have led with that? That's the big issue here. This is the problem. This is the blockade. This is the barrier. Instead... He led with fresh water. And then he gets to this. It's a very important thing that he did not ignore her lifestyle. It's also a very important thing that he didn't say, as long as you're sincere and whatever, any kind of lifestyle is okay. He didn't do either of those things. But he didn't lead with what he could have said are the barriers. It goes on, and she says, well, I don't know, so I don't even know how to respond to that. So she asks him a question about worship, and he says, I would love to talk to you about worship. And you know, he tells her, worship is people who are coming to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It doesn't even matter where they are, and in fact, the starting point is not the issue. The coming and worshiping the Father is the issue, and that's what this water is about that I'm talking to you. And she is flummoxed. And about that time, the disciples show up. And then, you know, we have a little bit of an interchange. And then she goes back into town. And she doesn't say, you know, I knew those Jews hated us. She doesn't even say, we've been looking for a Messiah. I may have found him, but he's a judgmental jerk. She says, he told me everything that I had done. What's the significance of that? What's significant is he kept talking with her. He kept dialoguing with her. He kept drawing her into fresh water. And she was blown away. And so she started spreading the word in town. This may be the Messiah that we've all been looking for. And you know it interchanges a little bit more. But my favorite verses in the whole thing are near the end. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I had done. So when the Samaritans came out to hear Jesus, ooh, man, she's pulling them out to hear more. It says they urged him to stay with them. He stayed a couple days 
boy, don't you wish you knew what he taught in those two days? Man, I do. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, listen to this transfer that happens in two days. We no longer believe just because of what you said, although that had credibility for us to come out and hear. We now believe, and because we have heard for ourselves, we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Can you imagine the redemptive plan happening through that woman? She is the evangelist for Jesus Christ. Would you have imagined God ascribing that much value and purpose to that woman? Of all the people on the planet? In fact, we even read the story later in Acts when when John and Peter go into Samaria and there's evidence of all kinds of people who are believing and following and trusting in Jesus and they don't even know what it's about. The word is spread all over the place. That, I propose, is what holiness is about. Jesus didn't change all the stuff with her. He didn't recalibrate everything. He didn't say, here's what we need to do. We need to get into all of your lifestyles and uh, start you on a a 12-point plan, whatever. He said, here's what's going on. The spectacular thing about the gospel is that God chooses to cover over our disqualification. If you read the first five chapters of the book of Romans, it is completely to build for, completely to build a case for the fact that every single one of us is the Samaritan woman. That's what they're doing. That's what Paul is doing. Even the Christians, he gets in two, and he goes after the Roman Christians. You guys are judging those pagans for their pagan behavior. You're no better than they are. Then he goes to the Jews. You guys think you're something because you've got the gospel. You are no better. You all qualify. There is no one righteous. God has had to come along, 5-1, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Didn't go about the business of changing the entire scenario. Went about the business of offering life. 1 Peter 4-7. I think Christina read from 1 Peter 5. We did not discuss this. But 1 Peter 4, 7 is in a a passage of some instructions on what we should do. And it harkens back to a couple of verses in the Proverbs, a couple of verses in the Psalms that have this same concept. James referred to it. Paul definitely used it in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Peter 4, 7 says this. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins. That, that concept has been true for quite a while in the Jews' history. What it doesn't mean is love ignores everything. It also doesn't mean that love gives a free pass for everything. What it does mean is it's complicated enough that simple right-wrong scenario drawing is very seldom going to cover over much sin. The choice is to cover. With my young men, you wonder, how am I going to navigate? I choose holiness. I choose to highlight how God is accomplishing life. 
I choose to highlight the things where they are mirroring the great virtues. You ever wonder why people have such a time wondering why gay and straight, what, what's going on there? It doesn't seem like, like what's, what's so bad about it? You know why? There's a whole lot of virtues, particularly in a same-gender marriage, that we affirm, and so does the Bible. Commitment, covenant, love, encouragement, self-sacrifice, and we kind of go, wait, so are, are we supposed to ignore those? But, but we can't get past what the design seems to be, so how do we navigate this? And this passage, this concept, this story of the woman at the well helps you understand holiness applied. Because instead of choosing to define a person by what they're not or where you think they're falling short, in fact, line up because we're all in that category, you define a person by what the potential is there. You define a person by hope. You define a person by what God can do to accomplish his redemptive plan, even in and through the least qualified person. And that's what this looks like. That's what this is all about. Now, what about you? You say, well, I don't have that same scenario. That might not be the case. You have plenty of them. Whatever age group you're in, whatever scenario that you're in, you have opportunities. Children can be taught that attacking and tearing down their siblings is a starting on the wrong direction of applying and ascribing value and seeing the possibility that God can accomplish redemption. It's disrespectful, it's dishonoring. Why would we let that go on? Middle and high schoolers can walk in and find the person who's the most marginalized. That's what Jesus did all the time. Read the Gospels. Find the one. You don't have to find a hundred. Find one. Move towards them, not because you feel pity, but because you see potential. You choose to ascribe value to find the purpose and the virtue in the work. For singles, you can say, well, dating has become this big game and it's all just about the score, right? You could do that or you can ascribe enough value and worth that you say, I'm actually going to move towards someone regardless of what the end goal is here. I can represent Christ to this person. For married couples, have you ever realized how much opportunity you have to ascribe to your partner grace in the form of holiness Look for what God is doing inside of them. Put wind in those sails. Don't find all the things that are wrong with them that frustrate you. There's plenty. You're the same thing. You're just as frustrating to them. Senior adults, what if your prayers were not, man, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. It's all coming apart. There is no chance, no hope. How much holiness is ascribed in that attitude? What if your prayers, what if your breathing life into younger people was faith, hope, love, encouragement? We can go somewhere. My final story. I was walking in Denver with um, my son's partner, whom I have come in the three years that they've been together. I've come to love him and respect him a whole lot and like him. I just like him. Okay? We're walking down by Coors Field. It's a madhouse. 
because it's a game day and there's just people everywhere. It's a beautiful day. And he's so excited telling me about a presentation he had made that morning to a group of people about urban farming. This is what he does, by the way, for a job. He works for a nonprofit, works with teenage students who are at risk. He uses a business model of urban farming to teach them business principles, but also to teach them leadership and to give them hope. And he's telling me about some of the things and crop rotation and <laughs> all these different things that grow better on roofs and they grow better in the for- all these different things. And he says to me, you know, this is just such an amazing thing because I really think that we could make cities a better place. And I said to him, you know what? You and I are in the same business. And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> he knows what I do. <laughs> I said, you and I are in the business of seeing and believing in and ascribing worth to things because we have hope for a better future. And here's what I got to do for 20 minutes was breathe life into the theology of eschatology for that young man. As I told him, this is what it's all about. We're going toward a future that God has in mind for us. We're living into that now with belief and hope that God is going to do something that's so astounding we can't even get our minds around it. And it's hopeful. And he was floored. You have the chance to ascribe value and worth in distinction. Find the distinction and don't narrow in on it and find all the bad things. Find the distinction and celebrate. You have the opportunity to find the purpose and breathe life into it. That's your challenge today. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you because uh, this is tough. We have a thousand issues in our culture that make this really difficult. And uh, we fear that uh, people don't qualify and that somehow maybe even your kingdom won't come as a result of the um, negative things. But give us the chance. Give us the courage. Give us the heart. Give us the compassion. Give us the eyes and ears that Jesus had so that we may ascribe, we may import to others, export from us, import to them value and worth that we see, value in the distinctions that they bring. May we, God, be honest, but also lead people to your kingdom. Lead them forward. I pray that in Jesus' name.